Okay, what we're going to do is um, I'm going to when I look at Psalm 26, I will read the psalm just now, and then um, I'm going to say something about the first few verses. We will then sing those verses. I'll say something about the next few verses. We'll then sing those verses. We'll have communion, and then we'll finish uh, with a singing. So that gives you some idea of where we're going. Psalm 26, a psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul along with sinners, my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. But I lead a blameless life. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great assembly, I will praise the Lord. I love um, the Psalms for lots and lots of different reasons. One is because they are great prayers and when you're struggling with prayer, and sometimes I really struggle with prayer, I, it, it was the evangelist Billy Graham who said he always read a proverb a day and a psalm a day. And that's not a bad thing to do. And I like, I think every day I, I read, pray, or even sing quietly, so I don't wake the rest of the house, but, uh, but uh, a psalm. And just reading through them as prayers has been very, very helpful to me. Uh, however, when I came to this one, it was quite difficult to pray. I mean, if I asked one of you to pray just now and you stood up and said, vindicate me, O Lord, for I've led a blameless life, most of us would be looking at and thinking, who does he think he is? Or who does she think she is? And I hope David has a word with him because we know them and they've not led a blameless life. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. That's a tough prayer. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. Most of us are saying, Lord, don't look too closely. You know, please just forget, forgive. Um, forget all the stuff that's there. I walk continually in your truth, or I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. Doesn't that sound a bit self-righteous and a bit pompous? And, you know, when you think about the people you live with or work with or your friends that you have, you know, it, it's, it's a psalm that either seems out with our experience or it gives a description of a type of person whom we wouldn't really want to be, someone who's full of themselves, someone who appears to be very self-righteous and judgmental and condemnatory of other people. Look at verse 11. I lead a blameless life. Redeem me and be merciful to me. Now, the psalm is not the impression that we get. Now, you may not get this impression, but a lot of people would, and I had to struggle with it and try and think, okay, what does this, what does it mean? And I think we approach it in the, in the wrong way. And I hope that as we look at it this evening, it, it will help you understand and a, I hope it will be a prayer that you could pray. Because what this psalm is, it is a personal confession of faith. And it's something that is very, very deep. 
What is being said here, it's a demand for sincerity. I mentioned this morning that I would say what Jesus hated the most and what he hates the most is hypocrisy. And really what the psalmist is doing is he's coming before God and he's saying, I'm being honest. He's not playing games. He's not pretending. Now that is actually a whole lot harder than we might imagine. I think we find it quite hard to be honest with other people. We put on a face. You know what it's like. Um, you're, at, you're at home. You're really tired. And the door knocks and you see someone coming to the door. And you, you would maybe turn and say to yourself, or even if you're in a bad mood, to, the, to your family, oh no, I could do without this. And then you go to the door and what do you hear? Oh, how lovely to see you. It's wonderful. Come on in. You know, you just, and you just think, how does that, how does that work? Because it's not that you've got to go and be rude to people and, and things like that, but we, we, we find it quite hard to be real because sometimes we don't even know what real is. And I think in religion and in Christianity and in worship, it is so easy to be hypocritical. Now, that's why you have to pray for me because I have to stand up here and teach God's word. And thankfully, it is God's word and not my word. And so it doesn't depend on the state of my heart or where I'm at. But nonetheless, it would be fundamentally wrong to be a, a, just a complete hypocrite in that sense. Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, says he's glad that Jesus is being preached, even though the people who are preaching it were doing it out of wrong motives, trying to get him into trouble. And you can be glad when the gospel is being preached, but I think we have to recognize just how much Jesus hates hypocrisy. And what the psalmist is doing in, is here is he's setting up the difference between a Christian lifestyle and a Christian attitude and the, the hypocritical uh, lifestyle, the hypocritical attitude. It is very, very easy for us in the culture and in the world that we live in and given our own natures to live in two different worlds. And a lot of us as Christians do that. And the psalmist, he's standing up before God and he's saying, no, I'm not living in two different worlds. I'm living for you. And that's what we really need to be able to say. So I'm going to look at verses 1 to 3 to start with, where he says, I believe. Then we'll look at verses 4 to 5, where he says, I reject. Um, then verses 6 to 7, where he says, I worship. And verses 9 to 12, I receive. So first of all, I believe. And here's the interesting thing. He is willing to be examined by God. Now, we have a custom in the I was going to say the Presbyterian Church. I'm not sure actually if this is done. In the, I'm sure it's done in the Church of Scotland, but in the Free Church anyway, if you want to become a member in the church, you come and you meet with the elders. And I remember, I felt really very much for Donald tonight. I felt really did feel for you, Donald, because um, I remember when I went to meet with the elders in Baclue, and I was already a Christian and been a Christian for quite a while and was older and was a student and so on. And I, in my head, I had this image of a group of men sitting like judges, all dressed in black, and they were going to ask me about superlapsarianism or something, uh, some deep theological point. And it wasn't like that at all. It really was not. They were very warm and gracious and kind, and they just wanted to know about my Christian faith. But it can be quite 
scary when people are examining you in one sense, asking you about your faith, asking you where you stand with the Lord. Well, the psalmist identifies something that's much more important, and that is being examined by God. Test me, O Lord, verse 2, and try me, examine my heart and my mind. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3, where Paul is defending his apostleship and saying what, what, should, have, what should happen. <clears throat> but in verse 3, he says this, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, you tie that in with what is being said in Psalm 26. And you have, I think, a a good understanding of what it is. We are asking God to judge us. We're asking God to examine us. We're asking God to test us. It is a very powerful and dangerous prayer to pray. Now, in one sense, it's stupid not to pray it because God will judge us anyway. But we're asking God to judge us just now. We're asking God to show us what's inconsistent, what's wrong, where we are going wrong. Robbie Burns, oh, that God would give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us is not what's being asked for here. We're not asking to see ourselves as other people see us. We're asking to see ourselves as God sees us. Now, I don't believe that God ever answers that absolutely in terms of seeing all the bad or, to be honest, I'm not sure that in this life we could cope with either that or being able to see the intensity of the love that God has for us. But it's a very wonderful thing to say, Lord, please show me. Show me, test me, see if there's any wrong way within me, and change it. And you look at what he says. He says, um, he talks about belief. Uh, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Now, I have led a a blameless life. He's not saying he's never sinned. That's not what it means. It it would not make sense for David to say that of all people. It, It in fact, in the previous psalm, he said, take away all my sins. You know, it, it, it's not that he is standing in that sense and saying, I never, ever commit any sin. But the blameless life in this sense is the reliance and the commitment to God. He has a belief, a consistent trust. I've trusted in the Lord without wavering, without slipping. We just sang that. You say, you just said it. You just, when you sang that, in Christ alone, my hope is found. It's a lovely song, and it's a great song, and it makes you feel really, really good. But if you didn't mean it, you were a hypocrite, and you were lying before God. If you're full of fears and hatred, and you sang that song, then you were wrong. It's, you, you can't say, in Christ alone my hope is found, and then you try and put your hope in something else. The belief and the consistent trust is just simply saying, We know that we do things wrong. We know that there are so many things that we struggle with. But our hope is entirely and totally in Christ. 
And there's a depth in that. Examine my heart and my mind. The Ethiopian eunuch, before he was to be baptized, what was... What, what does hinder me to be baptized? He said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now, belief with all one's heart is not a, an, an absolute belief, a total certainty in the sense that, that our, our belief and faith couldn't go any deeper. But what it means is it's just, it's not half-hearted Christianity. It's not saying, I will try this out for a little while and see how I get on, or I will give God this part of my life. It, it is, God's got the whole lot. A half-hearted Christianity is no more possible or right than a half-hearted marriage. If you take your vows when you're getting married and you've got your fingers crossed, or you take your vows and you're really thinking, well, to have and to hold from this day forth till death do us part, maybe. We'll see how it works out. Your marriage is doomed. It's a total commitment. You may say, well, well, I can't know that I'm going to make a total commitment. I don't know what I'll be like in a year. I don't know what she or he will be like in a year. No, it's a total commitment. And we make a total commitment to Jesus Christ. There's a real depth. And in fact, that's what we want more and more. We don't want shallow Christianity. We don't want thousands and thousands of Christians in Dundee who are shallow. We want God's work to go deeper in our own hearts so that we can say this, we can sing this song. I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. We can be like Job, who didn't have as much reason to have faith as, as we do, who could say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I think also in this, when he says, I believe, it's a consistent trust without wavering. There's a depth in it. There's a real commitment in it. There's also a lifestyle. Look at verse 3. Your love is ever before me. Now, and I walk continually in your truth. Isn't it interesting? Test me, O God. Try me. Examine my heart and mind. Why? Because I'm perfect. No, because your love is ever before me. Because I see your love. And because I see your love, I walk continually in your truth. I don't walk continually in your truth in order to get your love. Because I have your love, because I see your love, I walk continually in your truth. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. The person who says, I'm going to keep the commands of God so that God will love me, hasn't got the gospel. The person who says, I love God because he loves me, and therefore I will keep his commands, has grasped the gospel. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, I believe. I really, truly do believe. You may say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. You may struggle with so many different things, but if you have that deep-rooted, just, you, sometimes you can't even explain it where you say, I, I believe, I really do believe. I don't have a, it's not a wishful faith, it's not, it's not just I hope in a, in a human sense, not in the biblical sense, it's I believe, I really do believe. And that's what he's saying. And if you are a Christian, you should be able to say that. And if you are not a Christian, you need to be able to say that. Verses 4 and 5, the second part, he says, I reject. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers. Do these verses sound arrogant, self-righteous, pharisaical? They do if we don't grasp them. The first thing to know is this is not about social preference. 
but it's about spiritual alignment. In other words, it's not saying, I don't mix with those sort of people because they're not our sort of people. It's not saying I don't mix with the poor or I don't mix with the snobby or I don't mix with the drunkards or I don't mix with... It, 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 that's, it's not about a social preference, who you'd like to have a party with or who you'd like to have a meal with. It's about spiritual alignment. It's about who you're standing with. It's about when there are sides and the question is being asked, who is on the Lord's side? I don't consort with hypocrites. Come out from among them and be separate. Evil and wickedness. I don't want to be part of it. Now, how does that work out? I've seen far too many Christians. And for some of you, this will, this will sound shocking, but just bear with it a minute because there's other examples that you may find uh, closer to where you're at. But I've seen far too many Christians who on a Friday or a Saturday night can go out with their mates and get drunk and on a Sunday be in church asking for forgiveness and wanting some kind of Protestant absolution. I've seen far too many Christians who will come to church and mouth words of praise and even pray, but when they have a dinner party and they have people around in their home and the people who are around in their home are mocking and blaspheming, they just be silent and join in it. And I've seen far too many Christians for whom when a mockery is being made of Jesus Christ in their sport or in their recreational time, they've kept silent. I was convicted of that myself once when I was playing football on a football field and one of our opponents was using the name of Jesus all the time as a swear word. And a friend who was with me who was a Christian went up to him and put his arm around him and said, listen, uh, swear all you want said, use whatever word you like, but please don't use Jesus' name because he's kind of special to me. I thought, wow, that's just... And the guy said, really? He said, I was only using Jesus' name because I thought you wouldn't be offended by it. You mean I can use other words? The guy says, yeah, use whatever words you want. He said, it doesn't bother me. But he said, that does bother me. That actually hurts me. It was, you know, it was actually one of the most powerful testimonies. It was just done quietly. It wasn't done as a fuss. It wasn't lots of people around... I was, just, I was just really, really amazed by it. The psalmist is not saying you don't have friends who are Christians, who are not Christians. That would be a, a complete contradiction of New Testament Christianity. He's not saying that you don't go out with your mates. He's not saying that you insist that if you, if you do, that they have to come with you to a religious service. He's not saying anything like that. He's saying that you don't align yourself with the wicked. And that might mean that when you are with your friends or when you are with your workmates or when you are with other people, sometimes you are going to be called upon to do something that is contrary to where the gang is going, to where the group is going, to what everyone else, that's different. And you don't even need to make a big fuss about it, but it will be noticed. When... Uh, the students re return for freshers week and so on and I hope this tradition st still doesn't exist but there was a tradition here as there was in many Scottish universities of you go on a pub crawl and you get yourself absolutely drunk and so on now I know Christians who refused to go anywhere near that and that was fine but I also know other Christians that what they did was they went with the other people but they just didn't drink they played pool or they had one drink and that was it and 
people might mock them or might laugh at them or might have a go at them. But they were choosing. They reject. And I, ju I just have this concern that there are far too many Christians who, when they're with Christians or when they're in church or when they're with people who believe the Bible, behave like Christians, but when they're with non-Christians, they behave like non-Christians. And then use the excuse of witness. Well, I want to be friends with them in order to win them. You don't win them if you've got nothing to win them to, if there's nothing different about you. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's not saying, I'm a snob. He's not saying, I don't want anything to do with non-believers. He's just simply saying, I choose to follow Jesus and that includes in my relationships. I reject the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. Now, I think in the New Testament terms, that is particularly demonstrated in the church, that when a church is being hypocritical, when a church is denying the gospel, it's madness for any believer to stay in that church, even to be a witness. It's not demanding that churches be perfection and all the rest of it, but it's just simply saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to play those kind of games, whatever the cost. So, I believe, I reject. Let's sing um, these words, please. Psalm 26. We're going to sing verses 1 to 6. Declare me innocent, O Lord. I've walked in blameless ways, and I have trusted in the Lord, not wavering all my days. The tune will be St. Member. Let's stand and let's sing, please. Let's continue to go on to look at the verses 6 and 7. We sang verse 6, but here he's saying, I worship, I believe, I reject, I worship. And this is about the worship in the house of God. Between the altar and the temple, and, uh, or between the altar and the tent, stood what was called the lava, which was a place where they washed before they went in to worship, where the priests washed their hands. And here he's identifying himself with the priests, and he says, I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. The washing and that symbolism is carried forward in the New Testament. That's just very, very simple. It's asking, are we clean? It's asking, are we washed? It's asking, are we like those in Revelation 7? These are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's asking us again where our hope is found. When we sit at the Lord's table, the temptation might be at times to say, well, I can't take communion because I've done this, this, and this. The opposite of that is almost to say, I can take communion because I didn't do this, this, and this, or because I've done something else. Whereas the only real thing that we should be able to say is we believe and we've Ask Jesus to forgive us. Jesus has cleansed us and forgiven us. I was once asked to uh, confess my sin in a group of young people because the man who was leading it, the young man who was leading that group, thought it was a cool thing to do and it would be really good and it would help people see. And he was trying to persuade others and because most of them were sort of Highlanders from Easter Ross, um, and most of them were young men, uh, they weren't going there. They weren't going to show any emotion, and they certainly weren't going to confess anything. And he eventually, in desperation, came to me and said, David, would you please confess your sin? Because obviously, it's the right thing to do. And I said to him, no, I won't. And I'm with these guys. 
And he said, why not? You're supposed to. I said, no, I'm supposed to confess my sin to God. And if I've sinned against you, then I will confess to you. And if I've sinned against you and it's affecting this whole group, then maybe I should confess in front of the whole group. But I'm not going to tell you my sin, partly because I don't know it all, and secondly, because it wouldn't do you any good to hear it, and thirdly, because I'm ashamed of it. And he tried to argue that, well, you're confessing sin, isn't that a good thing? And, and you know, it shows a humility. And I said, no, not really. It could actually show a pride where people were trying to boast about what different sin, almost what different sins they had. I don't want anyone to know my sin. One of the greatest verses in the whole Bible is in Psalm 103, where it talks about God's taken our sin, and he, as far as east is distant from the west, he's, he's separated it from us. And he's cast it deep into the bottom of the sea. It's like um, this technology that they're developing for coal, that coal will be the clean fuel of the future because they're going to have carbon capture. So they capture the carbon from the coal. What do they do with it? They will, they will uh, apparently they're going to put it in a blocks or whatever and then bury it deep underground or deep beneath the bottom of the sea. Well, God kind of does that. What he does is he captures our sin, extracts it from us, if you like, and then buries it, buries it, not so that it can be resurfaced, but it's just a way of expressing saying it's gone. It's a way it's gone. And when we sit at the Lord's table, we're saying it's done. It's done. My sin is gone. My sin is forgiven. I am, if you forgive the cliche and the way that it's used, but I am washed in the blood of the Lamb. I actually love that old hymn, Have You Been to Jesus for the Cleansing Power? Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? It's a shame that it's been caricatured so much, but it's a wonderful, liberating truth. And it does set us free. It was interesting this morning, you know, talking about freedom. I didn't see... Um, if I'd seen it, I would have got him up to the front. Callum, he's there now. <laughs> Callum's, have a look at his shirt on the way out. Callum King's uh, t-shirt. It says liberated. Now, Callum's a prophet. He obviously knew I was going to be preaching on liberation. But it says liberated. That's a great word to describe a Christian, liberated. And then there were two illust apt illustrations straight away afterwards because some of you may have missed the drama this morning and I might as well share it with you. That uh, we, First of all, Fraser and Samuel got themselves locked in the library. And there was no way to get them out. I didn't have a key. The main library wasn't open. The student union wasn't open. There was no staff around. And these two boys were locked in. Well, Gareth Spider-Man Moller climbed up through the roof. And I mean, this is the, the, you know, the lowering the man. He actually went through the roof, took the panel out, took the panel out, dropped down in, rescued them, came out. And everyone was really, really, you know, happy about this. And this was great. But then, lo and behold, this is the dailies for you. Uh, lo and behold, um, Mrs. Daly came to see how things were going, and Rosie was in the prayer room there. And I couldn't believe it. I went to open the door to get my bag and all my stuff, and there's Rosie with the door locked. And she was stuck. And this time, there was no way through the roof. And we're going, sweetheart, just turn this and turn. She wasn't able to. So I thought, what am I going to do this time? So I went away to try and see if I could find some security. And I saw Gareth Spider-Man Moller again, uh, taking his shoes off, believe it or not, about to start climbing up the glass wall. Uh, I said, Gareth, please don't do that. You, this, I can't, no, no, don't do it. And like all good members of the congregation, he completely ignored me and carried on. And I, as I was 
dashing all over the place, trying to find someone before Gary. I saw him he barefoot climbing up this glass wall, eventually hanging from the window. And I thought, he can't get in the window, it's too narrow. Well, it didn't matter. He just unlocked it and did something that I would find impossible to do on the ground, never mind dangling bare feet, you know, I don't know, 20 feet up or whatever it is. And he got in and he rescued Rosie to the scenes of great rejoicing as well. You know, I actually thought, (laughs) I mean, it's just bizarre, but um, I thought, in a sense, it is a great, great illustration. We lock ourselves in and Christ rescues us and then we go and lock ourselves in again and he rescues us. You know, I mean, it's, when we come and take communion, some of you, if you're honest, you're going to say, you know, the last time I took communion, I said to the Lord, I'm never going to do that again. And you were so grateful for what the Lord had done for you. And you were so thankful. And right now you're sitting and you're feeling really guilty because you never kept what you, you really meant it. You did mean it. But uh, sin is just so deep-rooted, like a deep, deep cancer in your life. But I come and I wash. I wash. Jesus forgives. He says, I proclaim. Proclaim aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Psalm 40, Psalm 78 are two examples. One is a personal song of thanksgiving. The other is a corporate song of thanksgiving. You know, the psalmist never, ever, ever stands up and says, I want to thank you, Lord, because I've led a blameless life. He says, vindicate me, Lord, because I've trusted in you. I've led a blameless life. He doesn't say, I want to thank you. He thanks the Lord for what the Lord has done. That's what we do. Ten lepers were cleansed. Only one returned to give thanks. We speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We proclaim and we praise and we love. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. That's an expression of choice. Again, that's tied in with the not consorting with hypocrites. That's him saying, my heart isn't with the wicked. I love the Lord. I love his people. I remember one time I stayed in a student flat in Edinburgh down Leith Walk. And uh, I wanted to go and watch a football match. And there were four pubs on the corner of our street. Each corner had a pub. And I went into one and I was sitting watching... I can't even remember what the game was. I think it was a Scotland game. And I just remember sitting there with a drink and all the people around me. And I just thought, you know, my heart's not in this. These are not my people. This is, much as I get frustrated and annoyed with the church, this is not where I belong. This is, these are not my people. David is saying, I love the Lord. I love his people. He's saying God's glory dwells in his temple. And he, he's delighted at that. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Now, in New Testament terms, that does not refer to the temple. And I don't even think in Old Testament terms it really did. It absolutely refers to the people of God. And a mark of being a Christian is that you do have a real love for the people of God. The Word, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And He's amongst us now where two or three are gathered. He's amongst us. This is why... One of the more subtle assaults of the devil has been to cause Christians to say, well, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. I used to say that. Self-righteous nonsense. I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. And what does Jesus say? I love the church and died for the church. 
oh yeah, I know that, I know that, but. No, no buts. I've uh, greatly, greatly enjoyed reading this book called Christianity and Liberalism by Grisham Machen, and I just read the last bit of it this afternoon, and I wanted to share this with you because this was written in the early 1930s, and if it was true then, it's very, very true now. It's a brilliant book about the difference between biblical Christianity and what people call liberal Christianity, and it's showing that they're two completely different religions. Well, this is what, one thing he says about this, about the church, about loving God's people. He says, at the present time, there is one longing of the human heart which is often forgotten. It is the deep, pathetic longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brethren. One hears much, it is true, about Christian union and harmony and cooperation, but the union that is meant is often a union with the world against the Lord, or at best a forced union of machinery and tyrannical committees. How different is the true unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Sometimes it is true, he says, the longing for Christian fellowship is satisfied. There are congregations, even in the present age of conflict, that are really gathered around the table of the crucified Lord. There are pastors that are pastors indeed, but such congregations in many cities are difficult to find. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often, one only finds the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward, not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and that the gate of heaven, and from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. You see, the reason I love the church and I love uh, St. Peter's and I love the people here is because the only thing that we all have in common is that we want to know Jesus Christ and to love him and to serve him better. And if that's not true of you, you won't last long. And if it's not true of us, we wouldn't last long. It has to be what we are about. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. It would be just fantastic for those who are not Christians to come in and say, God is with you because they see the glory of God dwelling. And just as fantastic for a Christian to say, you know, my heart is broken because I can't go and worship with my brothers and sisters today. There really has to be that kind of passion and bonding and so on. And that's why he says, I worship, I, I, I cleanse, I wash, I put praise, and I love your people. Now, we'll, we'll sing these words, and um, after we sing them, we will um, take the communion. Um, I'll maybe, well, I'll just simply say just now that, that is so t it's so tied in about whether we take communion or not. Because when we take communion, we're doing two things. 
we are acknowledging the body of Christ in terms of what he has done. So we are, we are being washed and we are praising, we are proclaiming. But also, we are acknowledging the body of Christ in terms of his people, where we are saying, Lord, I love your people. I love being at your table. This is where it is. This is, this is the center and the heart of the Christian faith, remembering what Christ has done, not just for me, but for all his people. So let's sing Psalm 26, verses 7 to 12. Tune will be Valerma. Okay, Psalm. Sweep not away my soul, O Lord, with those... Oh, no. Beg your pardon. Verse 7. I'll tell of all your awesome deeds, proclaiming loud your praise. That's where it should be. That's it, yeah. Your glory fills your dwelling place. I love your house always. Let's stand and sing. Let's read um, the warrant we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I received from the Lord, verse 23, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the psalm, says, I proclaim aloud your praise. We sing that, but when we take the bread and we take the wine, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we do what it says in that last verse we sang. We, with confidence, praise the Lord of grace in the people's gathering. We praise the Lord of grace. Now, if you are a Christian believer and you've uh, baptized into his church, you've committed yourself to follow Jesus Christ, then please, as the the bread and the wine is passed around, please uh, eat and drink gladly. Um, If you are a visitor here, what we just normally do when the bread comes, just take some, prayerfully take it and and eat then, and the same when uh, the wine comes as well. If you're not yet uh, a Christian or you're not sure, then please don't take it. It's of no value to you whatsoever. But uh, whilst you observe this and watch this, pray and ask the Lord to forgive you and to enter your life. Let's pray then. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of grace, and we thank you that in your grace you came and died for us. We thank you that we can lead a blameless life, a life for which we will not be judged or condemned, because you have already been judged and condemned for us. We thank you, O Lord, that it is possible, gloriously possible, to love you and to serve you and to praise you. And that's what we do as we accept these gifts from you. And we ask that we would be strengthened and our faith would be renewed and our sense of forgiveness and joy would be restored. In your name we ask it. Amen. Just turn to the, those last verses that we sang. Um, I worship, I receive, verses 9 to 12. I believe, I reject, I worship, I receive. The Jews, when they celebrate Passover, and I still think, I think this is still the case today, when the Passover was celebrated, 
they have a chair at the table that's empty and it's for the guest because the Messiah hasn't come and they're waiting for the Messiah to come. When we sit at the Lord's table, the chair is filled and it's, it's not a memorial just of a death. It's as though you've been at a meeting where the last testament and will of the person who died has been read out and all these gifts were given to you and you go to another meeting a week later and the person who's supposed to have died is there and you're getting all these gifts and all these things. And when Christ ascended, he left gifts for men and there are so many of them. I'm just going to mention the ones that are here. Number one is protection, verses 9 to 10. Don't take my soul along uh, along with sinners, my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are wicked schemes and so on. I've chosen not to be with them. Let me be under your protection. And God gives protection underneath of the everlasting arms. Verse 11, redeem me and be merciful to me. When he says, I lead a blameless life, redeem me. You don't need redeem, by the way, if you're totally sinless. That's not what he's obviously saying. But we get redemption. Here, people are being loyal to Jesus Christ. We're sitting at his table and we're, we're saying to him, Lord, continue to save us. And that's what he does over and over and over and over again. It's not that when we take communion, the sacrifice is being reenacted. It's that when we take communion, our forgiveness is being restated over and over again. And verse 12, assurance, security. My feet stand on level ground. It's a very defensive psalm at the beginning. Vindicate me, O Lord. Verse 12 is saying, I'm vindicated. My feet stand on level ground. I am secure in Jesus Christ. You go from his table knowing that you are protected, knowing that you are redeemed, knowing that you are secure. Let's praise the Lord for that. Um, let me just pray and thank God. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the bread and the wine. Thank you for the sustenance given to our souls. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the protection and the redemption and the security granted to each of your people. And may each of us know and experience that. This evening, tomorrow, for as long as you give us on this earth, Lord, we bless you and praise you. In your name, amen. Psalm 24. Well, before we sing that, we'll take uh, the collection. Actually, we always have a retiring uh, collection, and this is to do with, uh, again, with the building fund. Uh, next week, there'll be a table up with photos of the building and so on. Uh, I was in this week, and one of the things that excited me about it, just seeing how it's coming on and so on, is I just really believe that God is going to use that to encourage and to... Uh, draw people to himself. And that's a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, please do pray for the Monday Club tomorrow. We're going to be meeting here uh, rather than the school. Please pray for that. Uh, pray for decent weather and pray for helpers if anyone would like to come and help, even as a one-off. And I really do mean that as a one-off. I know some people can't commit to coming every Monday or even on a regular basis, but occasionally we do need uh, one-off help, and um, this Monday is an example of that. I do accept there's a certain deviousness in that request, though. 
because I'm sure that when you come to meet these children, you will love them so much that you won't want to stay away. So, um, but please do at least uh, pray for it. And the rest of the notices were on the sheep. Prayer meeting will be at the manse at, on, at half past seven. We had a lovely time of prayer last Wednesday, and it would be good to see that continue. Fellowship groups, they're all set up. And at the back, there's information about them. If you're not on one, then, uh, as I said this morning, please let me know. Um, we uh, believe that they're very helpful in the life of the congregation. Let's finish singing Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. You ancient gates, lift up your heads. You doors, be opened wide. So may the King of glory come forever to abide. Let's stand and sing to God's praise and remain standing for the benediction.